Hello and welcome to Prospect Lives. Each month our family of seven writers discuss their differing views of modern life for Prospect magazine. Spanning a wide selection of society, their reflections provide a window into their particular worlds and an insight into how they navigate their way through the challenges life throws at them. As we approach the closing of the year, there's a thread running through many of our columns today, the passage of time. Both Alice Goodman and Tilly Lawless are thinking about getting old, albeit with a gap between them. Tom Martin considers the speed at which time seems to whiz by on his farm, and Alice Garnett has decided to call a moratorium on dating, albeit until her next moment of weakness. But let's start off with Sheila Hancock. Here, Sheila considers the automation and dehumanization of modern life. I worry that Homo sapiens is in danger of losing the power of speech. One by one, the places where we exercise this skill are being shut down. At railway stations, there will no longer be manned or womaned ticket officers to guide us through the complexities of the system. On the train, if strikes fail, there will be no friendly guards to help or, in these angry times, to protect us. Banks are closing their local branches, distancing us from helpful managers. You can pay in money at a post office, said a spokesman on the radio, who didn't seem aware that many of them are closing too, or have been destroyed by the post office scandal. The supermarkets are replacing those friendly checkout workers with payment machines that make the whole process take twice as long juggling your bags while you work out what must be weighed and how to use the card system. In France, a visit to the boulangerie to pick up a baguette is a twice-daily gossipy event. In Chiswick, you must ring a bell to be let in, as most of the shops are locked in an attempt to frustrate the armies of invading shoplifters, a situation that is not conducive to good conversation. I used to get phone calls from my daughters and grandchildren. Now, I get incomprehensible messages written mainly by something called predictive text, which it seems to me mostly predicts inaccurately. If they are feeling upset, they no longer attempt to describe their feelings, but just add a crude picture of a face called an emoji that I must try and fathom out. Are those tears of grief or laughter? In the old days, oh Lord, have I really reached the age where I use that phrase, the world was a talkative place. We talked loudly down the shelters to drown the noise of the raids. We talked to the conductor on the bus and to our neighbours over the garden wall. Local pubs were meeting places and there were lots of them. I lived in one in King's Cross. There were usually a couple of regulars in the public bar sitting all day at the counter chatting to the landlord while others played darts or shove apne or dominoes. A few old biddies, who would be me now, were in the back ladies' bar, sipping their port and lemons and putting the world to rights. In the saloon bar were mainly women, enjoying each other's company and taking fizzy lemonade and crisps out to the kids sitting on the doorstep. There was a lot of boisterous talk, laughter and occasionally a sing-song. 
Where have all those locals gone? Who are they talking to now? We were opposite a police station. It was a tough pub. If things got out of hand, one of the coppers only had to put his head round the door and shout, That's enough, lads, and peace was restored. The local coppers were respected friends. I thought of that recently when I lost some jewellery and had difficulty finding a police station because so many have closed down. I was told that the only one I found open, we don't do lost and found anymore. I was recently in St Mary's A&E and found out the police do not do mental health problems either. They just dump people at the hospital and then the resident security guards protect the staff. The police are grossly understaffed and the Met seems in a chaotic mess. So they have no time to get to spend getting to know the public that they used to. In international affairs, silent isolation is no protection from mass immigration, climate change and deadly viruses we need to confer worldwide. There are signs that Homo sapiens is seeking a way forward, that we are finding new ways to commune and communicate. Police may no longer be pursuing minor crimes, but the public have set up their own system. Local WhatsApp groups report cars or bikes stolen or found abandoned. They warn of suspicious characters and various scams. Now, of course, this could be dangerous. But I am impressed by the approach of the local Hammersmith website. Some participants seem to have a good knowledge of the law. Recognition of mental illness and poverty are sympathetically expressed. Trolls wittily rebuked. I think people are desperate to communicate. Watching Glastonbury on television, the joy of huge crowds released from Covid isolation was palpable. I felt the same way at the proms this year. People united in ecstasy at the magnificent sounds that human beings can make. It reached its apotheosis in the silence that followed a superb rendering of Mahler's Ninth Symphony. Over 5,000 people utterly still for half a minute, breathless with wonder, followed by deafening cheers and stamping feet. We are alive, we will not be thwarted. Our opportunities to communicate may be reduced, but we will find a way to get together and be heard. When future archaeologists study this era, I'm fairly confident that they will not find the remains of a sad animal with overdeveloped typing fingers and no voice box. While Sheila laments the slow decline of human-to-human conversation as the pace of life speeds up, Tilly Lawless reflects on turning 30. On reaching this small milestone, she contemplates the gap between physical age and life experience. I hung out with someone recently who I hadn't spent time with before. And as you do with anyone new, I was sussing out their character as we spoke, trying to get a read on what kind of person they were. This is something I've honed through sex work. People often present themselves as a certain kind of person when there's another kind of person beneath. 
and the desire to push the former forwards can reveal a lot about the latter. I'll often let people know that I'm trying to figure them out by saying, I'm trying to work out if you're using long words to impress me or if you just like the pleasure of the words. Or, was that sarcasm or or are you just really German? I know they're equally trying to work me out, so why not openly acknowledge what we're doing? Sometimes this steps the conversation up into a more playful zone by stripping away some of that politeness and pretense. From some references this person had made, I was beginning to piece together a picture of who they might be, and so I took a shot at it and asked, are you really scared of ageing? They stopped short, surprised, as we hadn't spoken directly about anything to do with age, and then said, it is my biggest fear. Does it come across that much? When I nodded, they added, that's a problem. I'll have to do better at hiding it. Aren't you scared too? I answered, not at all. And once again, they were surprised because we were the exact same age, 30, and it seemed they'd thought a fear of growing old was an inevitable part of that. For my whole life, I've been surrounded by young people terrified of ageing, and in the last few years, their fear has ramped up. Social media constantly throws anti-ageing recommendations at me, and well-meaning but panicked friends tell me about glass skin and preventative Botox. A fortnight ago, I said to one such friend, All this is based on the assumption that I want to look young, which I don't. I want to be and look healthy, but that is not synonymous with looking young. In discussing this with people, I have learned that so much of this obsession with youth is about desirability, what people want in others and what they assume others want in them. I've always been into women older than me and find lines around the face sexy, so I've never been concerned about having them myself. When I explained this to the person whose biggest fear was ageing, they said, See, that's the thing, I like to date younger women. The straight women and gay men I know with the most acute fears of looking older are the ones who are into younger men too. It seems bizarre to me that they are more worried about there being a perceptible gap in physical age than the inevitable gap in life experience. But I guess one is easier to remedy. Sex work has also unexpectedly quieted any fears society told me to have about ageing. When I started at 20 years old, 30 seemed ancient. I couldn't imagine still working the industry then or that I would be able to compete with the younger women that I was told were inarguably more desirable. At 30, I make more money than I did at 20, something I would never have predicted after the warnings of women older than me who said, make it now while you can. I see now that what you age out of is the ability to work long shifts night after night. You lose the stamina rather than the clients. And I also know that some of their fears came from having made a lot of money young and spent it in the belief that it would never stop coming, a form of financial illiteracy that is common among people raised by families without assets, who live day to day and so weren't taught how to manage for the future. A similar spending pattern that conversely also exists amongst the children of the very rich, who now they'll always have something to fall back on. No one told me that although I would lose clients who only wanted me when I looked super young, I would also gain clients who want me now that I don't. There are clients who want a bit of maturity, just what I want in people I fuck. No one told me either that I would feel lucky that I was living long enough to see my face pass through the transitions of age. But I realise that now, and I am gladly submitting to age as I see others around me fight it. I guess getting older when you're in the early stages of adulthood can be, as Tilly has shared, fulfilling. But Alice Goodman is concerned that as she grows older, she's also growing stale. It's 12 years now that I've been rector of Fullbourne at the Wilbrahams. I'm 65 years old. 
Like our churches, I'm starting to need regular inspection and repair. Knee replacements in 2018 and 2022. A mastectomy last year. And this summer, after a church warden suggested I have that cough checked out, a diagnosis of chronic sarcoidosis, an autoimmune condition I'd never previously heard of. Although this leaves me short of breath, it's manageable at the moment. I now wear hearing aids, or some of the time at least. An old lady, that's what I'm becoming. My hair is grey. I stopped colouring it when I came here. Sooner or later, I figured I'd need to bite the bullet if I didn't want to turn into the woman on the bus with the jet black hair and the scary grey roots. The reasoning behind my choice at that moment, to go grey, was that I knew that this would be my last post, the one I wouldn't move on from. It wasn't, like the chaplaincy, a fixed-term contract. The rectors of Fullbourne tended to stay on for decades, and thus the plague took them or they were turfed out by Parliament or the King. When I was installed here, part of the ceremony involved being led up to the bell chamber and ringing the bell. According to custom, the number of times the bell was tolled was the number of years the rector would stay. How many? asked the tower captain. As many as possible, I said. That turned out to be 17, which the congregation counted out loud. After a dozen years in post, you know a lot of the story of the village and many of the stories of the long-established families. You have a good idea of who's related to whom. You've seen the village changing and have been part of that change. Two jubilees, the Queen's death and the King's coronation, the lockdowns, the community aid network, new housing, a neighbourhood plan, the enlarging school and the encroaching city. People know me and I know them. Many of the congregation from that installation have died, and I've told their stories from the eagle lectern and laid them in the ground. The first baby Jesus is now in high school. Life is never boring. All this has come to mind, not so much because of the anniversary of my coming here, but because when I visited the Archdeacon last week to let him know about my health, he remarked that he and another friend of mine had been talking together about how a priest can tell that they're becoming stale and needs to move on. Afterwards, on the way home, I wondered, do my colleagues think I'm getting stale? Is the parish sick of me? Am I becoming stale? Both these friends are some 20 years younger than me, and both have been in their posts about as long as I've been here. They're two of the best priests I know. If they're worried, how much more so should I be? Then I thought some more. The old pattern of clerical life was that once appointed, the vicar stayed put, and thus preferment beckoned. Come up higher, to a canonry, or an archdeaconry, or a bishopric, or at the very least a more desirable parish with a larger stipend and a better house. It was all very Trollopian. This began to change in the late 20th century, at least for some of us. The idea, inculcated at Theological College, was that after your curacy you'd go to a junior post somewhere and stay there for a few years, 
before applying for a more visible post with more responsibility. You'd stay and make your mark for five to seven years and then move on. Moving on and moving upward was the point. Clerical life had taken the shape of a career in management. The thing was, this structure took hold at the same time that women were being accepted for ordination. And women didn't move up the ladder in the same way men did. Rural parishes and multi-parish benefices were filled with women, are filled with women, women like me, who have come and stayed and cheerfully gone grey, maidens who have turned into mothers and crones in post. We can't think about going stale. We have to think about getting better with age, like fine wine or a good tin of sardines. I have to chalk it up as a mission success when the teenagers outside the co-op want to give me fist bumps the way they did when they were in year two. And believe me, I do. I think Alice's parting views on growing old and maturing like a fine wine are the perfect way to view the process we all go through on a journey to becoming classically elegant. After the short break, Mike Brearley looks at the way some of Cricket's greats have taken sartorial elegance one step further and displayed their gracefulness on the cricket pitch in a way they strike the ball. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 per month. Visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and subscribe now. Like art, sport is set aside from our regular activities of work, material gain and survival, and one aspect of its appeal is aesthetic. We love not only the contest, the outcome, the scores, but also the style, the beauty, the form. In few other fields of life do crowds of people share, with complete absorption, the intense thrill of a physical moment a goal, a brilliant try, a single batting stroke. Fine cricket writers, C.L.R. James, Gideon Haig, Shield Berry, have analysed such instances in cricket. James speaks of the one saving grace in his ne'er-do-well neighbour in Trinidad, Matthew Bondman. Matthew could bat when he practised People stayed to watch. My own little soul thrilled with recognition and delight. James quotes from an 18th century account of an eminent cricketer of the time, William Beldham. It was a study for Phidias to see Beldham, noted particularly for his cutting, rise to strike. Michelangelo should have painted him. Haig writes a whole book on the first famous action photo taken by George Beldham in 1905 showing Australian Victor Trumper jumping out to drive, bat held high. Berry, too, analyses an early action photo, the 1928 depiction by Herbert Fishwick of Walter Hammond playing a cover drive at the Sydney Cricket Ground. As a player, captain and writer, I too have always been taken 
with the aesthetic appeals of cricket. When my father's mind was so damaged by Alzheimer's that he had no understanding of the state of a game or of who was playing, he still got pleasure from watching cricket on the television and he could still recognise and be moved by a well-played stroke. He usually got the umpire review decisions right too, lifting his finger for an LBW or shaking his head dismissively. One element of beauty in the game is the economy of effort combined with maximum effect. This is a value shared in mathematics and the sciences. Albert Einstein spoke of his maths and physics as being, in part, art. He sought elegance, even beauty, in his equations. I recall fielding in the covers to Colin Cowdery at Canterbury, where the crowd regularly purred its admiration for him. His silky cover drive required minimum movement of the bat without flourish, yet his timing and placement produced by the subtlest adjustments of his hands meant that he could almost at will pass me on either side. Its beauty partly consisted in its functionality. It was safe as well as elegant, the bat straight, the balance perfect, the head still. It was classical batting, correct, hard-earned by discipline and practice. Technique may at times be overvalued, but it is at its root important because it's reliable, repeatable. For Cowdery, there was no excess. The classically elegant is not the only style that appeals. Brian Lara, the West Indian star, had a wristy twirl to his strokes. His batsmanship had a more baroque flair than the sparer, almost Puritan simplicity of, say, Sachin Tendulkar, his great Indian contemporary. The comparison reminds me of the two great English players from the mid-20th century, Dennis Compton and Len Hutton. Hutton's approach was safer, more restrained, less adventurous, less decorated. Yet the Lara Compton decorations were not mere add-ons or ornaments. The spiciness of their play amounted to a change in content as well as in style. Of Ranjit Singhji, the great Indian batsman of the late Victorian age, it was said that he never made a Christian stroke in his life. Lara, Compton and Ranjastinji were more romantic than classical. We're also thrilled by displays of power, strength, even violence. The muscled hitter with his speed of bat, earthy, wholehearted, sheer freedom. I recall the exuberance and boldness of those late-match onslaughts by Ben Stokes, which took us certainly took me, back not only to the village green, but to the optimism and dreams of childhood. In this mood, Stokes is a superhero for people of all ages. I'll add one more feature, one laced through all the kinds of aesthetic impact I've mentioned so far, the classical, the romantic and the earthy. There is, at times, an approach to the sublime. 
sublimity is reached when sport is lifted from the merely cultured into another domain, when daring rises up out of hesitation, when the ordinary becomes extraordinary, when players transcend what we have any right to expect. I think of Brian Close advancing down the pitch at Lord's in 1963 towards the great fast bowler Wes Hall, taking blow after blow on his body without flinching. So far, so good. Moments of beauty, of power, poise, balance, grace. But aesthetic appreciation goes deeper than this. Aesthetic appeal is not to be seen only in a moment, captured as in a photograph. There are also qualities that emerge over time, like resilience through difficult patches and creativity in playing smart cricket, whether as batter, bowler, fielder or captain. And there is the nature of motivation involved. I recall John Arlott describing the pleasure that comes from playing for the delight of a match, as opposed to playing for national or local prestige only. James's stretch starts then within the game, in experiences that require a longer arc of play and attention, and in the richly varied features of individuals and groups, which appeal to us in the special kind of way that we call aesthetic. He goes much further, seeing connections with broader aspects of life, including both moral qualities and social factors in forming identity, but these will have to wait for a second article. As spectators, we identify with the player or team, almost in imagination becoming the other. When I emerged from a theatre where a Harold Pinter play was being performed, especially if Pinter was himself in it, I'd find myself walking with his gait, talking with his rhythms and voice, in fact, becoming his characters and speaking with their voices. Something similar happens in sport. Sometimes, too, the skill of performers extends to their attention to the task, to their good sense, total commitment, truthfulness and creativity. There's a subtle but inherent shift from merely skill to virtue. Perhaps Matthew Bonman became a better person when he walked onto the cricket field and when he bent his back knee to play his characteristic sweep shot, arousing approving ahs from the crowd. Skill merges into or combines with the moral qualities and these qualities merge into beauty. As Keats said, beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. From beautiful cricket strokes, we move on to beautiful countryside. And this month, Tom Martin talks us through his plans for the years ahead, looking to install corridors to support wildlife alongside his farming practices. The year 2030 may seem like a long time away, but for me, the years seem to pass like days, so I know it will be soon upon us. A couple of years ago, I made my farm plan for 2030. The plan outlines what we're working towards, what I want the farm to look and feel like in the years to come. I have a farm map showing 5% of our land set aside for pollinators and overwintering birds, plus the dozen or so woodlands we've planted in the recent decades. 
there are many ponds and waterways, grassy buffer strips and infield habitats created in the last few years thanks to government support for environmental stewardship. New planned developments include a community garden plus an area of agroforestry where 600 fruit trees will be planted in rows within arable fields enabling cereal or legumes and oilseeds to be grown alongside those local variety fruit trees. There is an overarching plan to link up our older oak trees with newly planted ones so that the wildlife moving through the landscape can use a network of native trees that provide a home and feeding ground for more mini beasts and megafauna than any other kind. We also plan to reinstate and diversify the corridors between our hedgerows which provide the woodland edge environment favoured by so many creatures including butterflies, moths, birds and more. And I've included 109 acres of super-rich, abundant and diverse traditional grassland that will be managed by mob-grazing sheep, where a small area is grazed intensively for a short period and then left for a long time to recover, mimicking natural processes. All of this will take place beneath ground-mounted solar panels that will provide renewable energy for our community and beyond. There's more detail including our sequestering hundreds of tonnes of carbon every year using adapted farming practice. But it's too much for this column. And so it was with interest, or perhaps intrigue, that I received an invitation from the Natural Cambridgeshire Partnership Forum to give a presentation as part of an online meeting on the topic Do Farmers Care About Nature? Thankfully, this was amended to Why Farmers Care About Nature? I feel the fact that farmers do is pretty obvious, although I can see that there have been examples to the contrary, ranging from misunderstanding of proper farming practices through to outright abuse of the natural world. Not so, I hope, on our farm. I started the presentation by looking back through history to when simple farmers knew nature and the world around them in many ways better than we do today. They followed lunar cycles intimately, understanding soils and land, managing habitats from nature-friendly coppice woodland to meadow and marsh, and valuing wildlife as a companion and an essential indicator of the farming conditions. The post-war interruption of the so-called green or chemical revolution, which developed artificial fertiliser and high-yield wheat, saved millions, arguably billions, from hunger. But it also served to distance us from our former knowledge of nature, Nowadays, we have a modern scientific understanding overlaid with ancient traditional practice and know-how. For those with an interest beyond the regular column here in Prospect, you can follow us on social media by searching for Farmer Tom or Village Farm. It's an exciting time on the farm. As we look ahead to stewarding the environment with care, my challenge is in providing for our environment and helping to combat climate change while remaining profitable. We will need support from government where timelines typically run over just a few years, and politicians cannot, it seems, see beyond a forthcoming general election. Farmers farm and live in an environment where time passes rather in seasons and decades pass in a flash. While the seasons and decades fly by on the farm, Alice Garnett is waiting for the stars to align before she attempts to dip her toe into the online dating world again. I am almost officially done with dating no more mullets no more moustaches no more graphic designers i beg i'm at capacity i can't keep up with the number of siblings that every boy in south london has or the star sign of every boy in the east besides i'm officially out of free space for birth charts on my astrology app and without the stars to dictate my romantic choices 
I'm at a loss. I know it's a little soon to be calling it quits on love, but I've spent the past year dating and I am both under and overwhelmed. Anyone who's ever used a dating app, especially in a large city, will be familiar with the feeling that there are at once too many people and not enough to make for a satisfying dating experience. So I'll vow to never go on a hinge again until the stars align and a brutal hangover coincides with my ovulation window, peak vulnerability, and uninhibited by my usual cognitive abilities, my thumbs will find their way to the depths of my phone where hinge has been lying in wait. Therein, I find stacks of profiles professing passions for Sunday roasts, travelling, and the Arsenal men's team. At university, I was chronically drawn to privately educated boys who had mansplained Chaucer to me, and aspiring writers who insisted that I follow their poetry Instagram account right after we'd slept together. This may be a reflection on the limited dating pool that Oxford had to offer. Now, my type seems to have narrowed even further to art school alumni with DIY mullets, singular ear piercings and flats in Hackney. And in a city of nine million people, I have only myself to blame. It's not that any of the first dates I've been on have been terrible. Pretty much everyone I've met this year has been nice enough. Polite, pleasant and unproblematic. I've almost always had an okay time. He's talked, I've listened, and vice versa. He's bought around, I've bought around, it all feels fairly equitable. Presumably a far cry from my foremother's dating experiences. So maybe I'm the problem. I know how to have a good time on a date. I've got the looks down, the etiquette built in, and the questions and anecdotes locked and loaded. I know how to have fun, but I don't know how to have a fulfilling experience. Deep down, I understand that this is because I fundamentally do not know what I want. Anytime someone has asked me, so what are you looking for at the moment? I've delivered a fail-safe politician's answer. I'm not sure. I'm mostly just fucking around and finding out. Serious or casual, monogamous or non-monogamous, romantic or platonic, I don't have a clear preference. Then again, in many ways, maybe I already have what I'm looking for. Two boys who are both aware that I'm dating other people with whom I've been casually sleeping for the better part of a year. No strings attached, no big feelings, but each with enough affection to make casual feel a little understated. We can hold hands at a city farm or accidentally spend a birthday together without it feeling like a big deal. These relationships qualify neither as strictly serious nor casual, platonic nor romantic. The only thing I know is they're not monogamous and I also wouldn't refer to them as situationships as that would imply some level of toxicity. Whatever they are, they sit way beyond the realms of any familiar dating experience that I or my friends have had. And if I don't know what success looks like, how can I expect to achieve it? If I'm not ready for a big romance, how can I expect to find it? I think the best thing for me to do is pack it in, embrace my existing roster of casual hookups, literally and figuratively, and just let love come to me. Putting a label on what a relationship is seems to be fitting with the world we currently live in. 
we seem to need to compartmentalize everything. Sarah Collins has struggled with her mental health for several years, and yet for quite some time was unaware as to where she fits in the personality spectrum. She believes that we should think carefully when deciding how to refer to certain personality types. When I was at my lowest three years ago, I had a phone call from a mental health nurse who wanted to book me in for an appointment with a psychiatrist. The nurse was unfortunately one of the least patient and empathetic people I've ever dealt with. At one point during the conversation, she told me callously that she was going to have to book me in for an in-person appointment instead of a call because I was crying so much that a call wouldn't be cost-effective for the NHS. I never ended up seeing that psychiatrist, though I desperately needed to. I discharged myself from the service a few days after speaking to the nurse, despite the protestations of the hospital's kind receptionist, who frankly deserves a pay rise. My discharging myself was partly the nurse's fault, but it was also because I developed a particularly insidious and corrosive new obsessive thought. I'd started to worry that I'd previously been given the wrong diagnosis, that I didn't have OCD or depression, but some scarier mental disorder, such as a personality disorder or a psychotic illness that might somehow make me a danger to other people. I felt I needed to evade mental health doctors in case they discovered it. All my obsessive worries start with a grain of truth, and I believe this one stemmed from the fact that I do not match the conventional image of the severely depressed person lying listlessly all day in bed. My behaviour is more akin to that of the 19th century hysterical gentlewoman. My despair is agitated and dramatic. I pace and wail and rock. My inability to feed or care for myself is attributable not to malaise, but to the fact I'm too busy fretting and doom-mongering to prepare a meal. Had I been born a few centuries earlier, I would have been shut away in a madhouse or sent to the seaside to convalesce, the latter of which is a treatment option I'm very open to. A new and welcome debate is emerging about diagnostic labels. Writers and academics are questioning whether they're a useful tool in assisting people in mental distress or a means of stigmatisation and oppression. Two new books explore the racist, sexist history of psychiatry. Am I Normal? The 200-Year Search for Normal People and Why They Don't Exist by Sarah Cheney and Mad World, The Politics of Mental Health by Misha Fraser-Carroll. Fraser Carroll highlights the way that capitalism plays a role in constructing diagnoses. The difference between ordinary distress and mental illness, she writes, is often divined by its impact on your ability to work. Reading these ideas led me to reflect on my wrong diagnosed obsession and my internalised prejudice towards those who live with personality disorders or psychosis, who are often demonised as dangerous and are pushed out of the public conversation about mental health. My own feelings about diagnosis are complicated. Receiving a diagnosis of OCD was a moment of salvation for me. Finally, someone understood what was happening inside my brain, so maybe I could too. But being among the section of the population that's labelled clinically mad, as opposed to the rest of you who live happily under the illusion that you're any less bonkers, can be disempowering. And not all diagnoses are created equal. While OCD is often mocked, it does not carry the weight or stigma of other labels, ones that in my darkest moments I've been deeply afraid would be applied to me. 
While the project of reforming psychiatry will require long-term systemic change, an easy place to start would be to review the language that is used to describe diagnoses. I am appalled that in 2023, doctors are still labelling patients, often those who've suffered huge trauma, as having emotionally unstable or antisocial personalities. Similarly, the word schizophrenia, which translates to splitting mind, has now taken on so many hurtful connotations that it's surely time to retire it. Any diagnosis that shames a person is unlikely to help them engage with the care they need. When I reflect on diagnostic language, I think of three young women who took their lives while receiving inpatient care at psychiatric hospitals in Middlesbrough and Durham. A subsequent report in 2022 found a litany of failings, but what sticks with me is a line regarding the working diagnosis of emotionally unstable personality disorder which was given to one of the young women. She did not like or agree with it. In years to come, I think it will be seen as one of the great cruelties of our time that our society's most vulnerable people were given such unkind labels. Thank you for listening to this episode of Prospect Lives. Join us next month as we discover what trials, tribulations and hopefully triumphs our writers have experienced. And if you enjoyed this episode of Prospect Lives, I'm sure you'll enjoy Media Confidential with me, Alan Rusbridger, alongside Lionel Barber, the former editor of the Financial Times. We take you behind the headlines, beyond the clickbait, to uncover the real facts behind a story. A new episode is out every Thursday, so be sure to subscribe and follow Media Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. Prospect Lives is brought to you by Prospect Magazine and produced by Martin Points Roberts for Fresh Air. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.